Hello, welcome to the Creative Writing Life podcast. I'm Justin Sloan. And I'm Paul Zeidman. And I'd like to introduce our special guest, uh, writer across many mediums and just uh, all of all around Renaissance man, Ross Berger. Thanks for coming on the Creative Writing Life podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're excited. You actually were a guest on the old show, I believe. That, That's uh, right. Creative Writing Career, probably, right? That's right. I think, it, Justin, you and I, I think I connected, uh, I just... Uh, done some work for Meta for a uh, virtual when the virtual reality headset first came out. Yep. I wrote the launch title called Farlands. Yep, yep, talking about VR a lot back then. Yeah, I do remember that because I was super excited about all this VR stuff, and I still am. I'm uh, using yeah. it for fitness occasionally, mostly, but uh, it's it's fun. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I still <laughs> am. You know, the possibilities are endless. It's just when it can be adopted properly for everybody to to love and appreciate. Yeah, I saw that on side note. I saw that the Pro now, the the what do you call it? the Oculus is now the whatever it is, uh, is only a thousand bucks now. They dropped the price five hundred, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm so tempted because it'd be nice to get rid of that extra layer of heaviness. But yeah, and notice but, you say only a thousand bucks. Yeah, that, only a thousand bucks. Yeah, who, need, who <laughs> needs things like food and clothes for my children? Right, you know? right. It's like a ten. Well, I, I gotta say, it was it, it did surprise me in the early day in the the lower depths of the subprime mortgage crisis when the iPad came out in 2009, I was like, no one's going to buy this because it's just a larger iPhone. Yeah. And yet I couldn't, I, I couldn't even walk into the Apple stores. The lines were so huge. I still think those are dumb. Like our kids have them. And then we got them the Kindle <laughs> fires for $74 and the Kindle fires as good, if not better, in my opinion, and $74, $1,000, right. but right. people love the brand. So whatever. Sorry. Yeah, I think we've got two old iPads that are just kind of gathering dust in a back room right now because, you know, we had them, we used them for a bit and then just kind of like, well, you know, then I got my phone and then I got a computer. So, you know, like, well, why do I need this tablet? Yes. Yeah. So we digress, right? Uh, so yes, yes. before we jump in, we always, like he said, do like a, what have we been watching or listening to or reading? Uh, I'll throw a reading one out there because we don't do those enough. I'm reading Deep Shadow by Nick Sullivan. It's one of these... Uh, kind of sea adventure stuff because I'm working on a cool pilot that is related to this. And I found out my cousin is actually, well, I've always kind of known that he's like an expert diver, but I didn't know he had some work involved in this kind of like security space involved with diving and whatnot. So he's been giving me some insight. So I'm having a lot of fun and doing my research. Wow. Very cool. Uh, I can, I can, I've got two things. Uh, the first one is uh, about, uh, so mid January, I did my uh, screenwriting presentation for the uh, the East Bay branch of the California Writers Club, and there was a writer there who was also on the docket, but he had to leave before I got there. But they, he left me his book. It's called uh, Wings Over Normandy by Harry Gale Michaels. It's it's a fictionalized account of a pilot for uh, and a B twenty six and all of the missions that he flew in in World War II. It's it's a very short read, but. It was entertaining. I, I also I'd love to talk to him. Uh, may may have tried to invite him on as a guest to talk about this because I'm sure he did a lot of research. It's you know very. It gets into a little technical about the planes themselves and also about the missions and uh, and also just you know the it all leads up to the D-Day invasion. So I mean I love that kind of stuff. So that was cool. And uh, I had to fly out of town this weekend. And on the flight back, I watched uh, Three Thousand Years of Longing, which was a George Miller movie from last year with. Um, Idris Elba, oh god, and I'm not blanking on the actress's name, but uh, basically this uh, kind of bookish uh, professor finds a genie's lamp and sets the genie free, and they have this long discussion about you know what's her wish going to be, and she's convinced that he's a trickster, and he goes on to tell all these stories about you know how he ended up in the bottle or trapped in the bottle several times over the past uh, millennia, and 
it was okay. <laughs> it was a, it's George Miller, so you know of Mad Max uh, fame. So it's visually right. great, but the story just was kind of it kind of plotted along. I was really surprised that they probably could have done one more pass on it to make it a little more interesting and a couple of twists and turns that were unexpected. But overall, yeah, I'm glad I saw it, but I'm glad I saw it on a plane because that's pretty much the perfect venue for watching that kind of thing. <laughs> Screen about yay big. I'm embarrassed to say I finally saw Road Warrior over the summer on HBO Max. My God, that <laughs> blew me away. I, I'm, I'm shocked. I felt like how have I been malnourished? I mean, that's such a visually stunning, such a creative cinematic uh piece of art i i so wait so the road war the one with mel gibson correct 1982. wow yeah i, I have you seen forever. fury road i didn't i know I oh okay amazing. you thought heard... you thought road warrior was good fury road is going to blow your mind i heard i know i'm embarrassed to say i didn't see that as either for some reason i guess i i just had too much diet of the dystopian stuff <laughs> i think like for whatever reason i didn't get a chance to see it when i was a kid because it was on HBO really late at night and sure. uh, I usually fell asleep right before I got to it. So it just was one of those things that passed over. And then Mel Gibson to me is lethal weapon, but that's mm. naive me. So <laughs> it's road. Uh, yeah, I highly, highly suggest going watch uh, and watching Fury Road. I think and watch it on the biggest screen that you can find. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, it's awesome. I heard. Yeah. From several different sources. I heard it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. So is that your, is that your, what you've been listening to or watching right lately? Or do you have another one? No, I got a bunch of stuff. I, I mean, um, before the end of the year, I was writing a video game, or I'm still doing so now, that has a kind of like a children-centric type of uh, world to it. So I wanted to read as many um, classically good children's novels going back to over 100 years. So Wind in the Willows, which was, I have to say, um, not only one of the greatest children's literary artworks I've ever read, but probably one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, the Toad character is absolutely uh, phenomenal and is probably a very relatable character that we can all see based upon the various different narcissists we've seen in our culture. Um, and Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, as which I remember as a kid through the play version, but reading it is a much different experience. And having read E.B. White's work, work beforehand through nonfiction accounts, it was, it was actually so so well structurally taught and like the very first beginning where they're talking about the the potential death of the pig just that looming you over your entire reading experience it was surprising for me to read that as it was dated in 1950 how could kids would respond to that i don't think today you can get away with that having read other kinds of children's uh, book authors of today which i don't find nearly as compelling as as those works and i'm in the middle of three or four other kinds of novels along the way some have been a little bit slower than others um you know i'm trying to read as much cormac mccarthy as i can right now because his last two books just came out in december so i just finished no country for old men having loved the movie and read the book which i like i like the film a little bit better but i, I love his work i think he's an absolutely phenomenal author um and i'm watching uh, last of us which i'm sure you've probably discussed with a lot of your podcasts and Party Down season three after a 13 year reprieve has finally come back. I said, it's very funny so far. The last two episodes, very funny show. Awesome. There we go. Cool. Well, let's dive into you. So yeah, as you mentioned, we actually talked back in the day, 2014, probably on the creative writing career podcast, which was the predecessor to this. And you had just come out with a cool VR title. And since then you've done a lot of other fun games. And uh, at some point before that you did TV and it looks like you've done some TV after that as well. Interactive TV. Oh, interactive yeah. TV. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. So would you call that like hybrid TV or is that, is that real TV or <laughs> how does that, 
fall into that category. I mean, it's a great way of saying it's, it's, um, so the runner was a, an an exclusive for the Verizon, um, network called, uh, go 90. Okay. It's no longer in existence. I think it was around for about three or four years. And prior to that, it was an Intel property. Okay. Um, so Verizon started going in there, uh, taking a lot of older IP that was in development limbo for a while. And the runner, which had been around, I think, since 2000, and then again in 2005, there wasn't enough good technology to actually actualize it, to realize it, until 2016, 2015 rolled around, where the cell phone was just that much more advanced than it was beforehand, where you can not only, uh, where you can um, move the story forth, because the idea is there's a invisible or anonymous runner who's going across the United States, and you have six teams of two trying to track down this runner before anybody else can reach them. And then if you are able to identify the runner or get to the runner's specific locale before everybody else can, then a runner is replaced. And then you, you start again in that locale in which you found them. The person or the team that found that runner would be rewarded with a bunch of money and they could continue on. What they did was instead of just making this just about the teams, they wanted to have an at-home experience. Yeah. So you could play the runner by giving good clues and information, by tracking whatever you could in the locale, whatever you could see what was going on, where you the hunches of what was going on, whatever the teams were putting out there, whatever the show was putting out there, yeah. give some information about the locale. If that information was deemed as high quality, those teams would make a recommendation for you to receive a reward that day, meaning like $100, $500, maybe even $1,000, right? There was an additional experience to that too, which was the leaderboard experience. Whereas if even if you're not contributing to giving information to the teams who are trying to catch the runner, but you're promoting the show in a highly spirited way and you get a lot of likes, you get a lot of retweets, all that adds up to um, leaderboard um, data. And those in the top five or the top 15 at the end of 35 days, because that's how long the experience took or 30 days, that's how long the experience took. You would be rewarded anything from, I believe, $25,000 to $1,000, $25,000 if you got the most likes and retweets. Um, then it goes 10, five for second and third. And then if you were in the top 10 thereafter or the top 12 thereafter, you'd get $1,000. Hmm. So it was just this confluence of different types of experience. You had the reality show. You had the um, the uh, participation within the reality show. And then you have the pure at-home experience where you're just trying to create greater uh, in, um, excitement for the show. So three wow. different parts and they all work together in some form or another. So when I was brought on early on, I helped design how that experience works out from, you know, how are these different mechanisms uh, work along the way. And then once the show was working, I was overlooking certain kind of digital assets to make sure that the show and the digital experience and the at-home experience were all working together because if something slightly goes amiss, then the whole show goes out of whack. Yeah, so a good example of one of these hybrids, us interactive, uh, new media maybe kind of TV experiences. Uh, we had one that we had done on with DJ2 and Genvid uh, called Rival Peak. And then in more recent couple of games they've been doing in that same regard that on IMDb are titled TV. But yeah, they're really like these hybrid weird things that are <laughs> like a whole new thing. Right. Uh, so yeah, so then you also have a few books that are out. I'll mention right now, Storytelling for New Technologies and Platforms, uh, Writer's Guide to the Theme Parks, Virtual Reality, Board Games, Virtual Assistants, and more. Yep. And Dramatic dramatic Storytelling and Narrative Design, A Writer's Guide to Video Games and Transmedia. And that's all really awesome. And then also, <laughs> what it caught my attention too, is that you uh, 
had posted, I think, that you were starting to teach uh, at USC. And that's pretty cool and something I wanted to hit on. So sure, lots sure, of yeah. stuff to dive in on that. Um, sure. Did you want to give your your little bio of anything I might have missed or just another little hello to the audience? Uh, I mean, uh, sure. Uh, basically, how I got into this world, into the video game and transmedia world was through television. I had a little, a small little stint with Law and & Order and ABC Daytime, and that's what propelled me to move out to Los Angeles. And prior to that, I was a playwright in New York, having worked with several different off-Broadway off, off companies and having really understanding immediate feedback on your work if an audience doesn't get it in a live space. You know, it's yeah. one of the greatest lessons you can ever have. But when I came out to Los Angeles in 2006, it was a year before the writers, the impending writer strike. And then no one was hiring new writers or folks that they didn't know. So when their strike actually hit, uh, I had already been working in the um, emerging media world, like uh, creating digital content for YouTube. And I worked on one of the big shows at the time, which was called Lonely Girl 15, which was a Webby award-winning ARG slash uh, um, show on YouTube and various different kinds of platforms. And that opened my eyes up to how you tell stories within new emerging technologies, that being YouTube. Because um, no one wants to see, wants to necessarily be there for 30 minutes to an hour. Sometimes they just want five minutes. And that was a radical adjustment for me as a storyteller. And, and upon that, then I just started focusing on different technologies, different ways to tell stories. And I wound up with different publishers along the way in video games, including Microsoft, Electronic Arts, Meta, uh, Amazon, though not in gaming, but more so in chatbot creation. So I've done some of that work as well, too, outside of the entertainment space. Really cool. Uh, I think I'll let Paul dive in because then we can start with like the high level he always has the higher level what is a video game kind of questions <laughs> yeah well yeah because uh as we've well established on this program is that you know justin's got a lot of knowledge about the things that i don't so uh, he's very familiar with uh, you know writing for video games and i don't so yeah uh, i mean how does one get involved with writing for video games we've talked about it before but like what what is your story about how you got involved and i also i, I, want, I want to touch on this in a little bit that you were talking before about writing on various platforms yeah. Uh, and that you mentioned, I believe, earlier or before we started about uh, about transmedia. Is that kind of like the same thing? Transmit just across different kinds of media? If I mean, correct. Which, whichever one you want to answer first. Is sure, sure. If, if the story or the universe or the franchise is a traveling is traveling across different media platforms. And particularly if you want to tell a holistic story or a holistic experience. And each of those platforms tells a different fragment of that story or reveals a different part of that experience. That's what I would call transmedia storytelling or transmedia franchise development. If you're just choosing um, a random technology and want to tell a story through it, that would not qualify as transmedia because it's not going, mm. trans, going across a different medium. It's staying in its uh, singular um, or I should say insular platform in that case. So so just as an example, that'd be like if you, so you had like the Walking Dead TV show and then someone wrote a video game based on the Walking Dead, which one would that fall under? So correct, that would qualify as transmedia in the sense that you're having franchise awareness. Okay. But if those stories aren't necessarily the same story, if they're two different stories, uh, mm, if they okay. to one another, that's when it gets a little... Uh, I mean, some folks, some folks believe that is transmedia. I believe that it is, but it's it's not a holistic necessarily experience because you're not telling one single story throughout all of it. You're okay. just creating more characters, creating greater awareness of those characters. I call it a fractured experience, meaning you're basically sharing the world of The Walking Dead 
but you're using different platforms to do it, different ways in which people get into the franchise itself. But if it's a singular story throughout all of it, I would call it a singular transmedia experience, okay. holistic, telling one thing. So, you know, some people have different definitions for those things, but that's how I've always been taught to think of it. That's how I've been hired to kind of create those types of experiences. Okay, so so one story across multiple platforms that would be transmedia, but one uh, I guess kind of like the like just you know the Walking Dead universe, and you just have all these different stories that would not be. No, I would still qualify that as transmedia, but it would be a more fractured experience. Fractured, okay, okay. right. You don't have to do your homework in order to play the game and watch the TV show. Sure, it's exhausting. You don't have to go through all the different media platforms, but it's all a part of, or a lot of people are calling it world building these days. Mm -hmm or immersion, immersive storytelling, you know, the, the terminology just seems to change every three years, but all that plays into the same ideas. It's you just want to create your story across different platforms to create greater awareness. Fans love to consume that intellectual property, no matter what the medium is. It really is understanding where the fan base is going hmm. and exactly how you want to communicate that part of the universe to them. Okay, well, let's take it back to the initial question. Is there, how did you get involved with writing for video games? I was, um, so like I was telling you, it was the, the writer's strike of 2007, 2008. Uh, was bringing my eyes to different uh, technological platforms at the time. But a year before that, I actually, um, I was hired by a cognitive fitness company in Santa Monica, meaning basically they create brain games for uh, um and puzzle games for the elderly or people who are infirm or people who are cognitively um, compromised in some form or way to basically create like memory games or a series of other very basic pattern games or trivia games. And the idea that they would use a technological platform to answer those questions, I loved solving those as a kid. I just really did. And it was basically my first experience working with software engineers and designers, even though the type of quote unquote video game was very different from what I would learn to be uh, in the console world. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And um, I wanted to create my own. Um, and by the time I was understanding what was happening in the media space and the media landscape, uh, not outside of the writer's strike, you saw YouTube growing in popularity. You saw social media growing in popularity. And then, of course, you saw the iPhone. And you saw other uh, technological platforms, mobile technological platforms who are now able to share a movie with you or able to share media with you. So I looked at this as an opportunity to when iPhone decided to open up their doors to independent devs uh, for 2008, because 2007, I believe, was the launch date of the original iPhone. And 2008 was when they opened the doors to anybody to everybody else. I decided I wanted to create my own word game. And it was a Sudoku game. It was called Vokudoku, Vocabulary Sudoku. And the whole point was to answer a trivia question on vocabulary, appropriate if you're studying for the SATs or, or uh, GREs or something like that. And if you answer it correctly, <clears throat> then you open up the grid to start playing Sudoku, at least make one single move within a cell to move forth. <clears throat> prior to that experience, like immediately prior to that experience, I was working in the web world as well, working for a franchise called I've Got a Crush on Obama, which was a very big um, web viral video company. And they started doing their own advert game. Basically, it's a, a branding game, a browser game. It was like a dance off between the top Democrats versus the top Republican candidates of 2008. And all I did was just basically write smack talk. But I really enjoyed, again, working with engineers. 
But as I saw video games becoming a larger and larger medium and the opportunity to tell story from it potentially, um, potentially open to someone like myself who had never done it beforehand, I figured if I create my own game, save enough money to create my own game, work with devs, understand what it takes to create a video game, even if it's pretty lo-fi, then it will probably just make me a better candidate when I look for look for roles. And the way I looked for roles was at Comic-Con, GDC, introduce myself, tell them what my experience was. When the product finally came out in 2008, I had something to show to people. So it wasn't just my writing of my scripts and my episodes or whatever it was. I actually showed that, hey, I know what it's like being in the Fox Den as well too. I know it's like working at three o'clock in the morning with folks across the country. You know, I'm learning the language as I'm doing this, but I understand what designers need. I understand what engineers need. I understand that mindset and I can create content based on that mindset. And that in many ways, um, with showing constant interest within the space and um, meeting other folks along the way and attending these conventions, again, Comic-Con, GDC and other types of places. Eventually I made friends with uh, the folks, one of Justin's former uh, employer at Telltale Games and uh, the head of writing at the time just really liked where my experience was going. We maintained a good um, relationship over those years in which I met him and then developed the app. And he decided to, um, give me a chance to write my very first console game through CSI Deadly Intent. So I had written for Law and & Order and then I had created this game. It's like, okay, I think that, I don't know what his mindset is, but I imagine that's like, okay, this kid kind of understands what we do. Um, he understands a lot of the hardships that we go through. So let's give this person a chance. And you know, as Justin can probably tell you, I mean, it was probably the best people to learn how to write video games for. Yeah, nice. I had some weird experience where like there was the old guard when I was coming in and then all the greats that were everybody's like the legends. And then like within like four or five months, they were all gone and it was all these new people. Oh. And I was so sad. But those first four or five months were awesome. And just got like that's lots awesome. of great training from people like Dave. Dave yeah. Grossman, was that his last that's, name? That's who exactly it was. Yeah, he was yeah, he's absolutely amazing. awesome. He's just a really brilliant guy, a total gentleman. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So let's let's chat about your... uh your books too, because I want to make sure that we cover those and then your USC stuff. Don't want to leave any of that out. Sure. So <laughs> you've learned a lot over, over the years. How many titles of games have you written now? Do you think? You know, I don't know. And I've also worked on a lot of, um, are you going to call the, uh, are you going to count the cancel titles? Because those are a lot too, know. especially uh, where, when you work directly for a publisher. Um, disheartening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely in the teens in some form yeah. or another. Yeah, Maybe which is great for people who don't know. Like sometimes you work four or five years on a game yeah. and then you finally get your one credit. So, <laughs> and, or, or you've worked on like five different titles. They all got killed in various stages yeah. of Greenlight and then they're ready to go. And I, I say this to students, I say this to, to people who are interested in going into the space. Like, don't be discouraged if your first five years, you don't see a title, you don't have a credit because sometimes things get canceled or oftentimes things get canceled. Can you still put that on your resume? Yeah, obviously the company, but how would that work? The company, but you don't put the product on there. Okay. Oh. Yeah. You said. I, mean, I, mean, I, I hear about Hollywood all the time. If it was seen in E3 and there was certain kind of buzz to it, maybe yeah. you could, but I don't even know if there's. Yeah. Or maybe you can mention it in the interview. Just don't put it on paper. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, as you know, ship titles carry a lot of currency in the industry. Yeah, there's always this question of how have you shipped a triple A game? And you're like, oh, what is triple A, first of all? And right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, 
so yeah, so you have these books now. What what caused you to decide to write these books, and have they uh, achieved your your dream, your your goal with with doing so? I believe so. Yeah, but uh, so I had just had a lot of people who found out that I had worked for Microsoft, found out I had worked for EA, found out I had worked written a single title for Meta or whatever the case may be, and um, it was students or it was people switching careers. It was people um interested in it but not necessarily wanting to be a writer in the medium and so suddenly I just had like this baseline of knowledge that I just developed over time and um you know things that were um also related to projects that had nothing to do with a video game space but there were similar best practices that were used or honed or I had developed them working for another kind of product outside of the game space and then I took that skill set and put in the video game space successfully. But a lot of it had to do with, A, developing my own game, uh, even at a small scale of just some kind of small little app for the iPhone, um, and you know, developing different, or solving for different kind of creative problems in the interactive space, if it was console, traditional video game, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there's so many different strategies to tell a good story, but a lot of times there's so many different strategies that when you're stuck and the story isn't working or someone comes to you at the 11th hour and says, we need a story. We were too late in the game and creating it, help us fix this. So I've been brought on many times, oftentimes as a, as a consultant to help bridge that gap. I'm like, okay, you have these basic ingredients. How are we going to make this work when I got three months or six months, or we might be shipping in two months. How are we going to do this? So those kinds of pressure cooker situations is just developed like these series of uh, skill sets to help me uh, navigate these storms, these torrential storms, because there can be very intense moments, no question. People need your help and you cannot let them down in any way. So what is it that you, we got to make this, we got to get this lifeboat, if you will, to shore and successfully. So that's where it came about, uh, several different angles there. Nice. And I see that you have in the narrative design one, uh, a, a section on The Last of Us, breaking it down. So that's, yeah. that must be fun to be watching the show after. Uh, it is. Clearly it is. You know, so and I hadn't cool. analyzed it in like uh, seven years, but it's great seeing the TV series. I'm like, oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. I remember, oh, this is, <laughs> this is the version. Oh, oh, this is beautifully done. Oh, this is really well done. They did this in a really great cinematic way for television. You know, it's a really good um, homage. I don't know if that's the right term in this particular situation they pay great respect to the original subject matter yeah and take it further without in many ways undermining or overshadowing the original ip nice yeah yeah and then so for people who are looking at these books um and, and on the so it looks like the first one you wrote completely right and then the second one you were an editor slash yeah. did some writing of course that's right yeah i, I um uh, yeah, it's an edited edition. I wrote the beginning and the end um, and then um, basically kind of like set the goals that I wanted each writer to go after. And then, of course, edited nice. their works along the way. And uh, so it came up to me because I, uh, the idea came to me because I had written for so many different kinds of media. It'd be awesome just to get best practices once again shared into a book similar to the dramatic story and narrative design thing. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted the points of view of other creators in the field. So I reached out to folks who were, and I had pretty much done a lot of what was already written in the game, but a lot of these folks went many steps further than I did. And they're phenomenal writers. And, awesome. uh, you know, just getting their points of view uh, was very enlightening for me. And I knew it was going to be very educational for writers who are interested in, for, in different media to learn how to do so from these writers. 
Yeah, really cool. When you decide to do the one that includes NFTs and Web threes, then uh, I'm on the I'm on the docket. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. I've got a apparently they're going to do a second edition of the first book. Oh, cool. So the second one will come about too in a few years. Well, fingers crossed. So. There you go. Awesome. Yeah. And then last for me before I head back over to Paul to see if he has any follow ups is uh yeah. So the USC thing. How did that come about? Did these books help? Do you think in that discussion, or did they come up to help you? land the gig and and what else would involve there? Yeah, I believe so. I believe the first book did, especially with the person who's in charge of the program there who had read my book and was thinking about potentially teaching it in one of his writing wow. classes. And when he approached me for the summertime, he was um, kind of, I don't want to say changing his mind, but he's like, well, why don't we have you teach? Um, and it's a workshop class, okay, that leads up to a larger lecture nice. that he oversees. And the lecture every week has a new, different, um, amazing speaker coming in who's done a lot in terms of writing for games. That's awesome. And otherwise, but uh, yeah, my goal is primarily to you know there's a there's a prescribed uh, uh, um, syllabus and it's getting the students to get where they need to be to be to evolve for an original IP mm -hmm. um, and and writing in, in towards that effort all the various different things that need to be written before you actually write a full on script or before you write a full on spreadsheet in, in Excel what yeah. is that you need to do to go along the way it's Have a great class. Have you started teaching the class yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In August. Starting in oh, August. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. So how much of your, this is one thing I've always thought about. I always thought, oh, it'd be so fun to go teach. But how much of your creative space, mind, mental, physical, <laughs> has it taken up? Um, You know, it's, it, I manage it well. You know, it's, uh, I've got other things that are going on. So when it comes to my own personal running, sometimes I have to have to hit the pause button in order mm -hmm. to service other clients or other kinds of, publishing needs or something like that mm -hmm. i've been pretty busy with the publishing stuff uh this year and getting towards the end of a couple of things now once that starts to be off my queue then i can get back to my personal writing because i also write short stories i've been doing a lot of that since covid hit and getting some of those published nice. really cool with magazines or what do you do with them uh actually an anthology there's this oh, cool. one particular author uh, one particular editor the tulip tree anthology uh hmm. based in the midwest has been a wonderful advocate of my writing and it's right. been really great to get that validated and last since two, 2020 nice and a good point there is if you decide to do novels someday i don't know if you already have or not but uh going out to those authors that you've been published with in the anthologies and like asking you know about blurbs or author shares uh that helps because you're already linked right. together and probably branded in a similar way great advice um, thank you yeah. <laughs> have you written novels? Are you thinking about novels? I have not. I have. Yeah, I am thinking about it, but I have. And I know you have. You're in the fantasy realm, right? Fantasy sci-fi. Yeah. And just a lot of my sci-fi is just pretending to be sci-fi and it's actually fantasy. So yeah. Right. <laughs> and did you study filmmaking as well? No, I studied theater. I studied oh, right. uh, playwriting. Nice. Yeah. Cool. I'll go back to Paul. Paul, any follow-ups from all that? Uh, just two, because I was looking at some of the titles you've worked on, and I noticed that uh, action and comedy tend to really kind of like be the uh, dominant labels on a lot of the titles you've worked on. Is that just a genre you really enjoy working on? Does it just come naturally? Or was it kind of like, you know, hey, I actually have a flair for this. I, I, I really want to work on these more. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, what your friends are working on, and they trust you to help them with really hard problems. You know, um, I can't say I necessarily have a, a flair of one over the other. I just do my homework. Once I'm mm -hmm. going to be approaching something, okay, what are the other greats doing in this field? And how can I basically 
do what they do, but in this, uh, in the lens of this game or in the mm -hmm. lens of this IP. Yeah, so it's a lot of homework. Making <laughs> okay. sure I'm getting the voice properly. And it's funny because if, if we're creating, starting from scratch and completely new IP, intellectual property, a tone document is really important and mm -hmm. write, write samples beforehand so people understand exactly how these characters speak or what's the uh, the iconography that needs to be used that fits within the overall tone of the whole experience. Has, has anyone ever come to you say, uh, Ross, we can't use that? Uh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, it's like, and, and mostly the kid, well, the character wouldn't speak like this. It's okay. not because I'm doing something that's in violation of localization rules or, or, or compl government compliance, uh, um, but more so just because they're like, they're really thinking the nuance of the character. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they would write that. I don't know if they would say that. Hmm. And, and, and I, I assume you're just kind of like, okay, I can, it's, you know, it's no problem to change. Is that, has that really ever kind of like thrown you off balance? Like, oh, wait, but this, you know, but that, that kind of ruins this whole storyline I came up with. If it changes a story beat, that's very, if you already have a tight structure and they say, mm -hmm. we got to get rid of this, like for an entire cutscene, let's say, or another narrative mechanism that delivers a certain important plot point that has to be removed because the level is removed that's when the architecture comes in and you almost have to revamp everything that you wrote beforehand, mm. kind of accommodate the lost information that's still necessary to the entire structure and through line of the piece. So how do you properly distribute that narrative information that just got cut? That's where you got to think differently. That's th those are the particular challenges I've faced. Wow. That, that sounds pretty intense. Uh, is, and what, yeah. uh, well, I was going to say, what are the, and also one of the things we were talking about just before we started today, uh, that you're getting ready to go back uh, to the East coast for, it, it, okay. Uh, it's, it's not a seminar and it's, it's a, it's a conference. Right. It's a conference. That's right. That's the word I didn't use. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I think it's a very interesting topic. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the author Philip Roth, who passed away in in, um, in uh, 2018, uh, would have turned 90 uh, on March 19th. So, in commemoration of his 90th birthday, the Philip Roth Society and uh, Newark Public Library is hosting um, three conferences. One is um, in for the first three days is more academic based, and that's the one I'm part of, even though I'm not. A traditional academic and then the last three days are devoted to performing arts uh, a lot of actors are going to be coming in doing adaptations of his work as a stage play or as a film uh, as there have been many of his works being done like the plot against america for instance was a miniseries in hbo i believe last year and i believe there's a stage adaptation in the works for one of his books called sabbath theater so i'll be presenting some of the first three days and um, mine is a somewhat of a memoir of how his work meant a lot to me during my early days as a writer uh, when I was in college and graduate school how I um, experienced writer's block when I was in graduate school and needed to get my thesis done I how I basically uh, how his work helped me not necessarily from a craft perspective but from an emotional perspective you know there's I was carrying the baggage of a of a family issue that was a long-standing family issue and just reading his work while it wasn't identical to my particular issue um, there was a certain kind of rawness, uh, how in, how character relates to others when a trauma happens that was almost psychologically identical to my experience, even though the facts were different. It's just the emotional reaction was was so similar. There was like, whoa, 
I've met the author who I can rely on during tough moments. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a memoir, if you will. It's a, a, a about those experiences encountering his work in my early twenties. This sounds great, and it's coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks in Newark, New Jersey. That's right. Not a little less than that. I, that's right. It's in a couple of weeks. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, and this, this which is good because by the by the or time next this, week, this, yeah. okay well it, okay this might post after that but <laughs> just in case someone's there hey i've still got two days left right. uh okay that's great uh i don't have any more questions this was really fascinating stuff and again like i said uh i don't really know much about the writing for video games uh, industry but i mean justin's very knowledgeable and i mean some of your books sound like they'd be extremely helpful for somebody like me who's just trying to break in and, and that's they're basically written for folks who are completely new to the industry. That was the intention. You know, I didn't go too much into the weeds because that's a different kind of story. I'm sorry, that's a different approach. Right. You know, I'm sure Justin might read it, say, hey, you know, I've been there, done that kind of thing. And it's like, that's okay. Because it's it's more so for folks like, like you know, again, students or people want to switch careers. What are the best practices um, and things to help? And I do talk about trends of the future, things to watch out for, that kind of stuff, which... In my second edition, I'll have to update it just a little bit more because there's new trends that are popping up as as is expected. Uh, which which book or which title would you recommend again? Like for somebody like me, just totally totally new, just kind of looking to find out a little bit more about it. Which title of yours would you suggest starting with? Well, the dramatic storytelling and narrative design. Uh, would you mind if I showed it? Is it? Is oh yeah, it sure, gross? please. Okay. <laughs> We're all about the visual aids. It's a little blurry. Back it up. Okay. It's like they're blurring oh, oh. it on purpose or something. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's just because it's your head. Blocking it right. from your head again. Let me see. Oh, oh there it is. Dramatic oh, storytelling like a... and narrative design. <laughs> Writer's Guide to Video Game. Something, something. Yeah. Um, it's so, on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, so, again, if you're someone who's interested in games, that's what it's all about. Mm. You know, the other one is more so if you're interested in writing for uh, uh, a ride at Disney World or mm. an interactive toy or a board game or a hybrid board game um a chat uh, not a chatbot but um a siri type of experience a mobile game um and others you know i have i've found great colleagues who wrote really fantastic work on those individual topics and like i said i learned a ton even had a even when i worked in those things there's more that i learned that um just made me a potentially a, a more aware professional. And um, yeah, that's a very special book as well, too. And again, it just came out in June. So I'm just trying to build, you know, a more of awareness of it. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm very much indebted to the authors who participate in that because they are very generous with their time and their insight. And those individual articles are just real standouts. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Russ, uh, where could people find you online if they want to get in touch and find out more? Um, you can check me out on LinkedIn. I'm, I, I am having a, I'm in the process of starting a website. So, uh, when that happens, uh, hopefully when this, uh, well, might be too late for that, but, uh, LinkedIn is definitely an opportunity to see me, um, good, a, a good opportunity to talk with me, chat with me. And, uh, yeah, once I have a website, maybe I can add it onto, uh, <laughs> <a> better date <laughs> onto your, uh, onto your podcast, but that's where we're doing, doing right now. That's great. Awesome. And then are you going to GDC this year? I am. I'm going to be there on, yes, I'm going to be there, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. Yeah, because I have a book signing for the new book, Storytelling. Okay. Are you going to be there? 
No, but I was thinking we'll probably post this right around that time. So that'll be a opportune moment to be like, hey, if you're there, go say hi to Ross. Awesome. I, I appreciate it. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully next year. I got to arrange more in advance. And yeah. Well, but, aren't uh, you in the San Francisco? Aren't you in? Oh, no, not you... anymore. No, we moved oh, to LA yeah. four years ago. So well, we have to have coffee because I'm in LA. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Let's meet up. That'd be great. Awesome. There you go. Cool. You're pretty here, people. Ladies and gentlemen, if he hasn't met me for coffee within a year, then you got to blame him. <laughs> cool. Awesome, Ross. Well, it's been great having you on and appreciate Thank it so much. Uh, readers, go check out the, the books and uh, give them some reviews because those always help authors and we love it. And uh, also our own books. Uh, both Paul and I have stuff on there. So we'll give our little outro now. This has been the Creative Writing Life podcast. Uh, also leave reviews for the podcast, share word of mouth, all that. I'm Justin Sloan. And I'm Paul Zeidman. You can check out my screenwriting blog, Maximum Z at MaximumZ.blog. And uh, my Go Ahead and Ask books about screenwriting and writing for various mediums and pie. Those are on Amazon as well. Uh, and also on Twitter at Maximum underscore Z. Like you said, he's Justin. That's Russ. I'm Paul. This has been the Creative Writing Life Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay, stay, safe, stay healthy, and most importantly, go write something. <laughs>